Hey everyone, thank you again for joining me on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell and today we're sitting down with Judy Kaziyama. Judy is a multi-sport athlete, an advocate in the outdoors, and the founder of Color the Trails. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, as you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, Norco Dirt Series. The Dirt Series hosts weekend-long mountain bike camps throughout Canada and the U.S. in some of the most exceptional ride locations. Whether you're new to riding or wanting to advance your skills, the Dirt Series offers gender-specific, co-ed, and youth-focused camps. Check them out at dirtseries.com or find their partner link on our website. Judy, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I know we booked this like months ahead of time, so I'm glad that we both could make this space and time for this. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. I'm really excited. So you have been in Canada since around 2010, right? Yes. So my family immigrated to Canada in 2010 from the U.S. We were in the U.S. kind of all over the place for 10 years, but with America and immigration and everything, it was very difficult to stay there. So, and we have family members here, so it's easier for us to be able to move here through the refugee program that Canada has, considering we have family here. So yeah, 2010, August 11th is the day we crossed. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Anniversary coming up. Yeah, it's coming up. So you are multi-sport, you're into everything, cycling, climbing, skiing. How did you get your start in the outdoors? Where did your passion in the outdoors start? Mm-hmm. I think my passion in the outdoors started when I was, I was born in Democratic Republic of Congo. So, and if you look at the geography of Congo, there's just so much nature surrounding it. And in my family's hometown, we just had nature. As kids, that's how we entertained ourselves because we didn't have TVs. So nature was always like all encompassing and part of what I'm, part of like the community is part of how I grew up. So I always had that option. And then sadly enough, because we moved around a lot due to the ongoing conflict in the Congo, the war got caught up in nine and we moved around a lot. I feel we move more and more into urban settings versus like more nature centering. So it made it a little bit difficult to access those things, but I've always engaged, whether it was just like running on trails or just going for walks wherever I could find any green space. So there was that interest. And then it wasn't until we moved to Canada. I think when we were doing the preparation to move to Canada, 2010, there was a winter Olympics that was happening and it was in Vancouver, BC. And that was like, because we're paying more attention to Canada because we knew we were moving to Canada. And I just saw like the skiing stuff that was happening. And I was like, oh, wow, I want to do those kind of activities. Like, I didn't know what those activities is. I was like, never really thought about skiing or even being in that space. So I was like, I want to do that. So I ended up coming, when we moved to Ontario, I moved to BC to attend school and just kind of focus on school. And it wasn't until I graduated, saved up to buy a very cheap car to take myself to the mountains. And I think that's where my passion really ignited because now I didn't have the barrier of having to be studying versus having to be outside, right? So now I could kind of do the outside, just like work because I was working in a coffee shop, work Monday to Friday, have my weekends. And for me, that was just like spending time outside. So, and then just through that, I just realized like I really enjoyed it, but I still didn't really know how to access those spaces. And oftentimes I was either invited by friends or I'll try to like go to some meetups. But I think my interest in the sports that I did was I tried it. I loved it. But I was like, I want more people like me in this space. Because <laughs> I was like, it's fun. People don't know what they're missing. How then do I begin to think about creating opportunities for others just because I was having so much fun. And I also found it very healing to be in nature, um, to be outside. And for me, it was just, I wanted that sense of healing to be kind of share with other people. So that's where my love for all those sports kind of came through. It's just like, it's a journey, right? I don't think life was a lot of us. Some people grew up in a very linear way of like, this is something my family has done. But for me, it was a little bit of like going, wivering around in order to come to a place where I'd be able to fulfill that need as I avoid that I've always experienced. Right on. And so that was the impetus for founding Color the Trails? 
Yes, yes. So I saw Nicola the Trails, honestly, after graduating university. I was just doing a lot of reading and spending time outside. And just through my own personal research, noticed there was a huge difference between how marketing was working, right? Like how brands showcases predominantly white folks in camping, hiking, kind of that visual representation. But then when I would go outside, I would notice that there were a diversity of people in the outdoors who were doing these things, but there was, there was none of that. So I formed Color the Trolls as a way of, A, to reclaim that space and to say, hey, we are visible, we do things, but also reduce barriers for people who may be interested also in gaining that space and then being in that space and creating opportunity for them to learn and engage without all those barriers. And the growth has been phenomenal. It just took right off. Walk me through sort of the last four years of just phenomenal growth and experiences. Yeah, the growth has been amazing to see because I think there was a huge desire and recognizing that. And I think for a lot of things, it showcased a lot of brands, a lot of organization. It's like you excluded us from this space and we have the right autonomy to create our own narrative. And that we don't really need you in a sense to be outside. We don't need your permission. We just have to self-organize. And that growth has just been really cool to see. And it's been very organic. And I think a lot of people just kind of see the growth. But like behind the scene, it was like me for two years speaking up on the topic. Me just being persistent. Me organizing and facilitating hikes and recognizing that sometimes people didn't show up. And how do I just continue to be that persistent? So that's going to be the journey. And I think just that persistency and continuously going for it allowed me to be able to engage and um, allow me to have space for the community to come together and have fun and experience the outdoor in a very kind of, in a very safe space in terms of everybody learning and engaging with each other. Do you think that outdoor industry companies are starting to realize the market they're leaving on the table by excluding people of color when they see the growth of these types of organizations? Yes, there is. It's actually interesting because pre-BLM, summer 2020, I had reached out to a lot of brands, well-known brands all over, just kind of sharing with them my vision about Color the Trails and what I wanted to do. And it was interesting because the feedback I would get be like, hey, there's no budget for it, right? Or there wasn't really an interest. Or if there was an interest, it would be very kind of tokenistic. And I did market research. Like I, I know like a Black woman, for example, I spend a lot of money on hair products. <laughs> and research shows Black women spend billions of dollars on just hair product alone. So there's a lot of spending power that I think women hold and women of color hold. And, and trying to get people to kind of see that and how that can be translated into the outdoor industry, it was difficult. There was really no interest. And I think when BLM started and all, you know, people pausing and recognizing that, hey, there's a whole demographic of people that we've excluded or a whole demographic of people that do also have spending power. I think that's where a lot of the brands begin to reach out and wanting to kind of work with Color the Trills because they see the opportunity, right? But the future is super intersectional. It's super diverse. So it's like, if you're going to be a company, if you're going to be a brand, you need to maintain that or else you're going to wither off and die because nobody will be supporting you. And we've seen such prime example coming out and we're from Victoria's Secrets and other brands where refusing to be inclusive has actually harm them, right? Because of the idea that they hold doesn't, you know, translate to the everyday consumer. So yeah. <laughs> so let's take a step back. So for someone who comes up to their first color of the trail events, like what should they expect? Tell me about what that experience is like. When you're coming to the first time, I think you should just expect a lot of laughing and joy that comes to color the trails. And then also just like looking around and recognizing that, wow, I'm in a space that's super diverse. We're all kind of starting almost at the same level. We're all learning together. And like, it's a diverse group of people, like, especially for those of us who live in Canada or like I'm in Vancouver where the black community is 1.2% of the total population. So there's not a lot of us. So for me, it's just like recognizing and seeing people that look like me in that space and being able to connect with them and talk to them. 
And, and it's been really beautiful to see how people, they may be from the same country, like they may have immigrated here from the same country, but because of what they do and like, just like their lifestyle is completely different, but it's like the nature that's bringing them together. And now they're like, oh, I'm no longer the only one from my country that does. There's somebody else. So like that networking and that community has allowed people to kind of formulate friendship and relationship outside of Color the Trails. And that's why I see Color the Trails as, is I just see it as a community hub where you can come or connect with other people who love adventuring, who love to do these things. So you can go and do it with them and have fun with them. And it necessarily doesn't always have to be color literal. So rather we're just kind of like a point of connection. And if you're moving to a new city, you don't know anybody, color literal has really proved and a lot of our member has been a really great place for them to meet new people because Vancouver, as much as I love the city, it's a very lonely city. It's a very difficult city to connect and meet people. So Color the Trails really just provides you that opportunity to connect. And, and you can go here in BC or Alberta or even come to Ontario. And it's just the same atmosphere of just like really there folks coming together, respecting each other and just wanting to learn and be in community with each other. And I think, and that's been really beautiful to see just like the joy. I think more in fun, it's just a joy. Like we're all being silly. We're all falling as we're learning something and we're all applauding each other and encouraging each other. And it's something I think that's really beautiful because we do not emphasize on this mountain culture vibe that goes on that can be very bro-y, that can be very like show off, but rather we're really community led and community really mindful that if one of us is struggling, we do everything to encourage and support that person because we also want that person to have fun and to come back and continue to feel like this space is for them and was designed with them in mind, right? And I think we still have a long way to go, but I think that's we're getting there in terms of really working and creating opportunities for all. And that organic community building is really obvious on like the message board, for example, on Facebook, where someone will be like, oh, hey, I want to go to this trail on the weekend. Does anyone want a carpool? It seems like people really recognize that it's safe to put themselves on the line and get together that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been really beautiful to see because like, I think oftentimes we also, I think when you're doing anything community-based, oftentimes as a community organizer, you try to facilitate and organize everything. And I think that can be overwhelming and that's stressful to the organizer. So what Color Literals does is, yeah, we all see about the event logistics, but we also like calling for community accountability in terms of community members offering rides, car sharing, because like, I think like as a community, we need to be responsible for each other and support each other on that journey. Like Color Literals can't fulfill everything because A, we're not, we don't have millions and millions dollar operational budget. So we can't do that, right? So we really do rely on our community to be able to engage, to be able to support each other, to get to and from, to give rides, to chip in on gas and to put themselves out there because like you can't really expect to make friends if you're always on the sideline, always looking, right? You have to kind of put yourself out there and take that little risk. And I think people doing that, it's just been really beautiful to see and to witness and to just see folks supporting one another. You've done a lot of work in making sure that cost is not a barrier to participation mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your impetus for that and tell me how you accomplish that because that is, that's mind-boggling. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. I think one thing people have to recognize that Color the Chills is not a nonprofit, it's a for-profit business. And that was intentional on my part because I think oftentimes when we talk about building wealth, we I think it's important to build on Black wealth. And I think it's important to recognize the work that community leaders do. And I also didn't want my work to constantly be seen as charity or volunteer. Like there's nothing wrong with those things. I volunteer support. I think it's beautiful. But when we're talking about equity and justice, it's also recognizing that we need to invest in Black innovation way of thinking. Because the way I see it, if this idea was presented by a white dude, it would not be for a nonprofit. It would be for profit and there'll be way more investors investing in it, right? So that's how I was really going towards Color Literals, making a for profit business. So the way we work in terms of subsidizing is as myself, I am a sponsored athlete. So what I try to do is encourage because I've been sponsored. I personally feel it's becoming a very weird thing where you're getting all the benefit 
which mostly is benefiting the company, if you actually think about it. But then those companies are not being held accountable in terms of how they support communities, how they support other people behind you, right? So for all the brands that sponsor me, I should encourage them to also sponsor Color the Trails to give us some funding so that we can put events on their behalf. And I'm very selective who my sponsors are because I want to make sure that they're in for a long haul in terms of learning, engaging, and really dismantling the outdoors and making it more inclusive. And that while they're providing opportunity for me, but they're also providing opportunity for those that come after me. And I think that's how we should always do community work. I think that's how we should, as individuals, also think about what does liberation mean? Liberation doesn't just mean me getting all the sponsorship. Liberation means making sure that I'm creating a path and I'm breaking this cycle of scarcity mindset and creating opportunity for others. So that's how I operate. So I try to get some of my brands that sponsor me personally to also sponsor some events at Color the Trails. Or I work with different brands to put events on their behalf with Color the Trails. So a lot of brands are trying to figure out DEI work. So I ask them to be part of our partner, to be one of our partners in terms of sponsoring events, whether it's two or three events per year or whatever amount of money they want to give us. And then we do that. And then that covers a lot of our administration costs. And then whatever the activity that we're doing, we also reach out to those businesses and see if they can give us a good rate. So that, so that that rate is also being passed down to our members, to people to participate in coming. And for those who still can afford it, because we try, like, we try to make it as cheap as possible. And for those who can't afford it, we always have some finances set aside to sponsor them and to help them be able to be able to part, take part in that. And it's been really great kind of study, I guess, or as we're analyzing is that when we actually reduce the barrier it makes it super accessible for folks to be able to enter those spaces and on their own. Like they come to Color the Trails event, they're like, wow, I love climbing. And then they do our climbing sessions, like our progression session, they love it. And then the next thing you know is they're getting their own passes to the, they're self-organizing with people that went to that and began to do that. They're now like finding cheap deals in terms of finding a harness or finding shoes. But we also try to reduce even like the gear barrier. So like for the climbing program that we just recently had in Alberta, it was six weeks and we had very like discounted, like for the six weeks, folks can get a good pass for those six weeks for the training and getting coaching and improving. But also at the end with some of the sponsors and people that we work with, we were able to help people get shoes at a discount, climbing shoes at a discount. We also helped people all to get their own harnesses and then also find ways to buy cheap, um, to be able to get them the, like, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking on the word, <laughs> the belay device so that they're actually set up, right? So it's not just like, oh, come to events and do this, but it's like, okay, now we give you, giving you kind of the tool that you need to do this. Now you can now invest in doing like a 10 day pass or X web pass, and it becomes like a little bit more affordable. And it's also teaching people to figure out what is their value and what are they wanting to invest in? Like I love fashion, but I find like I buy less clothes because of that, because I'm investing in my coaching for mountain biking, or I'm investing in things that actually brings me joy. Like clothing brings me joy, but for me, I'm just like, no, I'm going to save up to buy that piece of gear that I want. So it's also really helping people to readjust in terms of how their finances, when, when they develop a new passion and maybe want to spend their finance, you know, then a little extra money towards those different things. And with our mountain biking program that we have in BC, we're hoping to replicate it in other places, but we're just waiting on bikes because the industry has been really tough in terms of finding mountain bikes. But like all of the mentees that come through the program, they get a helmet, they get a jersey and shorts. And we're also working with a distributor to get them mountain biking shoes. So they get a whole package as part of the program. And then they also not only riding with an experienced me mentor, but then we also offer them clinics that are subsidized so that they can further learn proper techniques when they're on their mountain bikes. So all these things, it's like, this is how you reduce barriers and this is how you create accessibility. Because once you make things accessible, people will invest because that's the thing that makes them find joy or they found a community within that sport and it makes things a lot easier versus having such a high barrier to entry then when i see something that's like 300 bucks i'm like well i'm not gonna spend 300 because i don't know if i'm gonna like it right but when you reduce it and then you create all these opportunities for folks at an affordable rate 
then they're like, okay, it's worth it because I really enjoy it. And this is what I want to do. Sorry, that was a lot. It's <laughs> oh, that was perfect. And it's also establishing people within the community. It's kind of like when you move to a new community for the first time and you don't know anybody, you don't know how to find things or get things done. But once you've been there for a while, who has the best coffee and who has like two for one appies on Tuesdays and you know all the little tricks that make being in that community easier. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's what we're just honestly doing. Just being like, how do we create space and opportunity for people to be in that space, but also work within the industry to ensure also like the safety of people engaging in those spaces because everything is educational based, right? So we try to make sure that people are getting taught how to trails etiquette, how to not leave traces when you're on trails, how to be also continue to be an advocate for the land that we're recreating on and whose land we're also recreating on, right? So it's just like, it's an ongoing thing that we're working and developing and the community is just very receptive to those things. And, and I think that's what makes Color the Trails like community just so unique and so beautiful because it's being designed with a lot of people's in mind. It's not just something we're not like the people that come into our community are not an afterthought. And I know we have areas to improve, but we also have a very small organization. We don't get a lot of funding from the government to run this. So I think there also has to be room for grace for Color the Trails because we're trying to carry a big burden that we cannot fulfill. <laughs> and we're doing our best with the very limited resources that we do have. I, I think you're doing incredible. I also think in addition to creating these spaces, providing education and accessibility into communities of color, I think it's been so important how you've looked backwards towards companies in the industry. And for example, like criticizing slacktivism. Mm -hmm. Or they're just putting up black squares on Instagram. You're educating backwards too. Tell me why that's so important. Yeah, I think, I don't know, 2020 taught me that I think that a lot of people oftentimes want to do good, but they don't know where to start. And, and it's overwhelming because I think there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of white guilt. There's a lot of shame that's associated. And for me and how I do activism, I really want it to be centered on grace and understand that as humans, I don't think we're all perfect. I still have a lot to learn about what it means to be an ally to Indigenous people. What does it mean to be an ally to the queer community? And like, and that allyship is continuous work. It's continuous me being called out. Over. The way I see it's being called into conversation to correct my behavior so that I can do better, right? And there's a quote by Maya Angelou that says, now that I know better, I do better. So for me, I try to live by that. It's like, now that I know better, I try to do better. So going back and really working with those brands and organizations that has sadly enough participated in excluding community of color in these spaces allows us to kind of dissect and talk about issues and begin to find solution in terms of how do we move forward to this, right? Because I think it's so important that if I'm going to introduce people into the outdoors, that I am not putting them in harm's way. I'm not just sending them out there and then having them fend for themselves. I also want to make sure that people working in those industry are very much aware of being sensitive, making sure that you know, we're asking people's pronouns, being sensitive to being in terms of the kind of jokes that you're making, what kind of feedback you're making and being just being intentional of those things, right? Because in Alberta chapter, it's been really beautiful to see where a lot of the folks attending are Muslim women. And it's really cool to see like some of the guides who guided us last year, how they now, when they guide us, they're intentional of leaving time and making sure there's time and space for folks who want to pray, who are praying during our activity. And like leaving room for that, making sure that they're taking that into consideration, right? So for me, I just think that's beautiful. And that's how calling brands and calling organizations and businesses into conversation, we can begin to get rid of all these negative behavior that we've had, that we've been complacent to, we've been allowing, and like begin to change those negative behavior, begin to see each other's full humanity and not just tolerating it by seeing each other's humanity and respecting those humanity and being able to create changes that allow people to be the full self in the outdoors. So activism has to be both way in terms of me advocating for people to be in that space, 
But me also continuously holding the outdoor industry, all those brands with those black square and be like, hey, you made this promise. I'm going to hold you account to this promise that you made on a public post, right? Because like you felt like things needs to change and I'm just holding you accountable to make sure that those things are being changed. And I think it's easy to fall complacent. And it's also easy to assume that change happens instantly. Change takes time. If we want real change to happen, we have to do it carefully and graciously so that the future generation are now coming back and fighting the same thing that we're fighting right now, right? So for me, that's why I just take my time in terms of continuously holding people into conversation and holding space for them while still not sugarcoating anything. Because like, I think it can be, I don't want this to be just like, this is something that I do passively or for the social media likes or X, Y, Z. That's not really what I'm about. I'm really about changing the industry that I've come to love and I want to be part of. And I want that. I want my community. I want the BIPOC community, the queer community to be part of that transformation and holding those people accountable is just super important to me. Talking about knowing better will allow you to do better. I know that your minor was in gender studies. Yes. Yeah. And all of your events, all of your language, all of your communications are so very intentional about being inclusive to the gender expansive community. And we're all of like, well, I certainly, this is something that I am still learning. I you get these default things that you were taught when you were little, like in a formal setting, you say ladies and gentlemen, and that mm -hmm. is very exclusive, but it's the default setting that was drilled into you as a little kid, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me how you work through that. What advice do you have for those of us that are learning to do better? that need to yeah. know better. I think having grace on yourself and recognizing that it's learning, right? We all learn by mistake also. I think sometimes when we make mistakes, we're like, oh shoot, I really messed up. But I think it's important to kind of sit in that discomfort for a little bit, but then don't let that discomfort cripple you, but rather be like, how am I gonna move forward to this, right? So for me, I think it took a while, like as you're talking about language, instead of saying ladies or referring to everybody as folks. And just like, like honestly, even for myself, when I talk, they folks trying to be it. Until it's ingrained in me, even when I speak, I try to remove she, her, oftentimes or he, him, and how I speak about people. I just try to make it gender neutral. And I think parts of that, it could also be how we were raised and the language that we, spoke, we speak, right? Because I know in my native tongue, a lot of our words are gender neutral. So sometimes it's easier for me to be able to go more gender neutral versus like English is very like he, him, like just very strict on those things, right? So for me, even when I speak about people, even though I know their gender, I know their pronoun, I still refer it as them, right? Or they, just like making it intentional to a point where it's all muscle memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After that, because it then just comes in, right? But it does take time. And I think it's also just honestly, also going out of our own comfort zone and being spaces that's very different than ours and making sure we're in a community that's different than us, because that's how we're going to learn. And that's how we're going to engage by being in discomfort. Because I think it's hard to learn and engage when you're, the people you're hanging out with is all very much the same. We speak the same language. Nothing is really being challenged. So really... I think for me personally, because I don't really, I never felt like I fit into a specific group, even throughout high school, I was always a floater. Like I had friends in all different groups. So for me, I think that's how I'm able to maintain and learn because like I'm constantly in different demographic, different group of people and just learning the do's and don'ts. And I still always get it wrong. I oftentimes forget like when I'm planning events, when it's food involved, I have a lot of Muslim friends. And all of them have different dietary restrictions. So sometimes I'll make it. And then like somebody will correct me. It's like, oh, I don't eat that one. And then someone is like, oh, I eat that. And then I have to like, I just be, I apologize. I was like, I'm trying to do my best and manage everybody, but I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. And I think when you come from a place of being intentional, people see that intention. And I think there's more room for grace and there's more room for understanding versus when it comes for a place of defensiveness. And I think that's what really puts people off when you become super defensive and try to like protect your image. And I think that's where the harm happens. But just being open to learning, I think people can generally see when you are open to engage in learning. I hope that that's something that I'm still learning is how to always come off as being open to correction. Yes, um, it's it hard. Right. <laughs> but you it's can tell me that hard. and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
You describe yourself, your group, your organizational group as intersectional environmentalists. Yes. Tell me about that. Tell me what that means to you. Yeah. Um, Intersectional environmentalism, the way I see it as a Black woman, what does that mean for me as I engage in the outdoor spaces and the natural spaces? Anything to, like, how does a lot of the environmental policy relate to me or not relate to me? Right. So I think it's like really important to look at our whole intersectional identity. Right. So intersectionality is this concept that is like all of us have a lot of different intersection that we kind of deal with the world with. So be me being a woman, being a black woman. So that is my point of intersectionality and how the world sees me and how I relate to the world as well. So in terms of that, we want to make sure that we're advocating for for all different people who are involved in nature, right? So even though Color That Chose doesn't have anything for the disabled community, it's like, how do we continuously advocate and support organizations as advocating for that? And like, what does that mean in the policy, in the trails that's been built? What does their need be met in those spaces? So it's like constantly advocating for the lived experiences of people's reality, right? What does it mean to be queer individual and then hiking in the backcountry? Is it a safe space for you hiking in the backcountry? And like, how do we advocate to make sure that those spaces are continuously a safe space for uh, those individuals? How are policies being designed? Do they favor where are all these chemical leaks? We know that a lot of indigenous communities still don't have clean waters. That is an intersectional environmentalist in terms of how we approach and advocating for clean water, not just for our suburban neighborhood, but like for those communities that are so far away, for indigenous communities who are often left out in the conversation, but who are constantly fighting for, you know, equality for everyone. So for me, that's how I see it in terms of how policies, how I vote, how I engage and like how that looks into what it means to be a Black Canadian woman. You you talk about, you bring up Indigenous communities a lot and mm-hmm. you work to make sure that you're recognizing in all of your activities whose land you're on and what does that mean? So, so how do you do that and why do you do that? As somebody who left her Indigenous home because of conflict, because of the resource extraction that's ongoing in Democratic Republic of Congo, and whose family who are constantly, who's still there, who are being impacted by the ongoing conflict, insecure, like food security, all that. For me, I think it's really important because if there wasn't a distraction of Congo, I don't think I'll be in Canada. Like I'll be very happy to live and work in Congo, right? If we actually had things. So me coming to Canada as a means of escape, what is happening there to come here, but also recognizing that me coming here is due to the displacement of a lot of millions and millions of people that were here before me. And I think it's also important to recognize that a lot of Black people, especially those who were enslaved and brought here, they were forcefully brought here. And I think it's a really, it's different. And I asked for refugee of all the places Canada took our refugee, you know, Canadian government took our refugee status. So for me, just like really important towards reconciliation. And it's like, as a refugee, why is it so easy for me to come here to start a life, to build and gain education, to have access to resources? But then it's very difficult for Indigenous folks to, to be able to have those same access. On top of that, the pain and trauma that their family have experienced multi-generational with residential school and all that, right? So which is like important recognition. So for us in Color the Trails is reconciliation requires work. It requires us honestly being vulnerable and being like, we don't know, but we're here to just support. We're here to be as a support, however, where we can. And how we do that is we always use native land. That's here to kind of recognize which territories are we're on. But also we try to work and collaborate with other Indigenous outdoor organizations who are advocating in that space. And whether it's we're financially supporting or we're collaborating in an event to just showcase that, hey, we're here and we're here to support however way you can and what, however way you want us to show up, right? We're, I don't want to just like force myself into that community, but rather always have an invitation. And when we invite into that, into that space, how do we then work together and collaborate and move towards healing, right? And I think sadly enough, because of white supremacy and how the system works is like, it's caused us all to kind of be divided. 
rather than us coming together as a, a single unit to like be in support of each other. So for me, I think my healing and I, my liberation also is in collaboration with Indigenous liberation. And we can't, you know, separate the two. <laughs> no, no, you absolutely can't. Did you find as a newcomer to Canada that you, you know, were given good information about Indigenous peoples and Indigenous issues in Canada? Or did you have to learn that on your own? Was it through university? Like, how did yeah. you come to this education? It's interesting. So when I was, my family lived in Australia. When we were in Australia, we are really in their education system. They taught a lot about residential school in Australia. So I already kind of had like a foundation of understanding of what was happening to the Aboriginal people of Australia. The U.S., I went to from grade six, I think, all the way to first year university in the U.S. And there was really not a lot of things being said within the American, you know, education system, except they would just teach about the trails of tears, the displacement, but it would be brushed over. And then when I came to Canada, it wasn't until I moved to BC where I think I saw, I began, I took, I also studied, my, my, my concentration is history. So I took a lot of history classes and I took post and pre-colonial Canadian history. And the professor who was teaching that focus was, the entire class was really centered on Indigenous perspective more so than the Canadian Confederate perspective, which was like really eye-opening and just like very like learning more about what happened here in Canada. And I think a lot of it too has to be with my personality. I read a lot. So I, would, I actually went and learned about those things. And it's sad because I became a Canadian citizen in 2019. And when I received my Canadian package, I really encourage all Canadians to like download and read that, like, you know, what new Canadians I've been taught <laughs> when we go take our Canadian exam. And I was frustrated with it because it was, it concentrated mostly on the French and the English and like barely touched on other communities. or even barely touched a little about indigenous people, but it was very quick, not in-depth enough. So I think sadly as a newcomer, the Canadian government didn't really do a good job teaching, but I know now because of advocacy and people pushing the education system being changed so that that is being taught. And I hope that as children, maybe when children through the education system, that they're being taught that and also being recognizing that because I think as refugees or immigrants, I can understand that pain of being replaced because I've been displaced from my own community, from my own, from my own connection to the land, to the language and all that. I've been displaced sadly due to conflict, due to war, due to the extraction of the resources that, you know, my country has. And I think in some ways it makes me really want to advocate and alongside indigenous communities because that pain is not going away because yeah, there's a whole language that I've lost, a whole culture that I've lost. And I feel almost like a foreigner to it. <laughs> Color the Trails, in your expansion, it's not just been in terms of events and, and more spaces and spreading out across the country. You've also expanded into film and yes. film festivals. So the Black Like Me Outdoor Edition, tell me about this. How do you curate the films? Yeah. What's the thought process that goes into it? Yeah, I started the Black Like Me actually in 2020, just before we went into the lockdown. The reason behind it was I just got tired of film festivals always having like a diversity screening, right? So for me, I was like, okay, like I understand what you're trying to do, but that's not how I would advertise it. So I was like, so the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to put my own film festival that concentrated and showcases the Black experiences in the outdoors. So that's where the Black Like Me Film Festival came in. And, and honestly, I was searching through YouTube. I was searching through websites. I was searching through past film festivals to try to find anything. And that's how we kind of circulate the films and just honestly reaching out to the filmmakers and asking them for permission. Some of them want paid. Some of them want us to have it for free, which has been really great. So then we just kind of, yeah, we able to pull all those films together and um, invite the community and come and watch those films. And when we first did it, it was very eye-opening for a lot of people because it didn't see a Black fat woman who loves running and is running like long distance and like their journey and their inspiration in that. Because I think that really inspired other people to get into running because they were always on the fence. But watching film about it was like very inspiring or somebody skiing or somebody mountain biking. 
So all of those things, I think the reason why I wanted to go into the film, because I, when we see that visual representation, it also helps us combat the internalized stereotype that we carry in terms of what we can do and what we cannot do. And by showcasing that, I wanted, because I think sometimes when you tell our parents what we're doing, they're like, oh, that's for white people. Like, why are you doing that? Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. They're like, why are you doing that? Right. But if I can like be like, hey, here's a film. He's a black person who does this. And then begin to change people's perspective and be like, oh, okay. But because it's like for a long time, we haven't had the visible representation. Oh, if we've had res um, visible representation, it's been so tokenized that you just think it's just like that one individual. And it makes it seem like it's inaccessible to be able to enter that space. So that's why Color the Trails does both, where it's like we have the visual representation and then we have the community aspect of things where people can try those activities and have fun with it and know that it's not a foreign and it's not as difficult as it looks. You just have to kind of be introduced to it in a way that feels warm and welcoming. And the Like Me series is expanding, isn't it? Yes, yes. So the Like Me series is expanding. Um, we're hoping to be able to facilitate Indigenous Like Me outdoor edition. So looking at the outdoor within the Indigenous lens and having Indigenous speakers come and share their experiences. And it is going to be Queer Like Me outdoor edition again the importance of that representation of queerness in the outdoors. And then Fat Like Me Outdoor Edition, because I feel like we're still having to have this conversation about folks who are fat being able to do these things in the outdoors. And it really kind of like bothers me because I think if you have the passion, you have the drive, that should not matter. But it seems like there's really a lot of fetophobia and anti-blackness and all that. So we're really fighting to combat that as well as Disabled Like Me Outdoor Edition as well. We want to share the experiences of disabled folks who are just doing amazing things in the outdoors, but not in a place of almost like having this like inspirational thing, but rather like communal support and growth and seeing people's humanity. And that's what the Like Me Film Festival is about, seeing all of our intersectional identities in its fullest humanity. I love it. I love it. I keep trying to look for silver linings of the last two years with pandemic. I keep trying to find ways to think of it in a positive light so that I'm not upset. And one of the things that I have loved is that film festivals have gone online because you can't travel the world to go to all the film festivals. And I think that it creates incredible accessibility for people, even if it is happening in your city, you may not be able to attend. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah, and that's why like, we really love to do the online one because it gives people the opportunity to watch it, but then also have in the cities that we're based, also try to have some in person to continue to foster that community uh, connection as well. Because I feel like with the pandemic, a lot of us has been so isolated that we just want to be in community with one another. And despite all of the hardship that the pandemic has brought, but one thing I did notice for Color Literals, it gave people a space to be able to connect in a safe distance outside versus being isolated. Because I think being in Vancouver, where we barely got sun in the wintertime, if it wasn't for Color Literals organizing some events, even if it was small, I think my mental health would have been impacted a lot more if I didn't have that community where I can come go ice climbing or go skiing together while we're still keeping our safe distances and still being able to engage in those space. You have joined the Trans Canada Trails Board. Yes. And you are the first Black woman on the board. Yes, right? <laughs> I don't know why there wasn't any more press. I was like, whoa, this is interesting, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your work there. What are you hoping to accomplish with that group? Yeah, with the Trans Canada Trails, it's so funny. Like I've been working with them pre, I was working with them pre-pandemic. They were one of the very few organizations that saw my work and valued it. And were really trying to support me and follow the trails. So what we're really trying to work is like, as we're just developing strategies in terms of how the trails are going to be used or how it's going to be designed and all that, Color the Trails is continuously holding them accountable to making sure that it is inclusive and that we're looking in terms of accessibilities and also getting information out there to people because I didn't even realize the Trans-Canada Trail is in my neighborhood, but I would have never thought, <laughs> right? Uh, until I started working with them, I was like, oh, it's part of the Trans-Canada Trails. Interesting. 
So for that, just making sure there's more opportunities, but also making sure that the hiring processes and like who on the board is also very diverse, right? Because we want them to not just show the visible representation, but also have concrete representation within the organization to hire more diverse group of people, um, to bring more diverse perspective so that so that we can all enjoy this trail that's across Canada and how to access it as well. I think it's just like, that's what we're kind of working on and building that. So that's one, yeah, that's what I'm kind of hoping to do just continuously. For me, I think in any space I'm in, I'm just there to hold people accountable to just be like, hey, when you're creating a strategy, don't forget the diversity of Canadian that is on this country and make sure that it's accessible to them and information get to them because I've noticed there's a knowledge gap between the BIPOC community and the great outdoors, right? In terms of the industry, there's a huge knowledge gap in trying to work to bridge that gap. I think it's really important that you've set up Color the Trails as a business model and not a not-for-profit. And it seems like BIPOC activists, BIPOC individuals who are organizing in the outdoors, it's a lot, it's not just a lot of labor, it's a lot of emotional labor. Yes. And so how do you find work-life balance? How do you, as a person who recreates in the outdoors and has a passion for the outdoors and is an athlete, but is also organizing in the outdoors, how do you separate, you know, work from recreation, from mental relaxed time? How do you do that? Yeah, I'm honestly, sometimes I'm not even sure how I do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm honestly always learning. But one thing is, I think I have very strong boundaries and also hiring people within who are also BIPOC to be able to be part of this movement, right? So it doesn't always fall on me. But really the way I see it is I tell folks, it's like, I'm just the person who's looking for the money, who's like talking to the brands so that I can give, so that when my leaders come and be like, we want to organize that, we have the money, we have the capital to organize it. But they're the one who are building the relationship with all of the communities. So for a lot of it, A, I try to participate to some of the events and some of them I don't participate because like the thing about Color of the Trails is I never want it to be about me, Judy. Color of the Trails is about the community. It's about the people who are showing up, participating, engaging, who are members or non-members. That is the face of Color of the Trails. Color of the Trails is not me. I'm just somebody who came up with the idea, who's working behind the scene to make sure those ideas has come to fruition. So I think that's a really important model that I think leadership should really be about because I think if Color the Trails was just about me, then if I'm not there, then it will all fall. So really learning to find leader, leaders within the community to be able to lead a lot of our events, to be to, able to facilitate a lot of the events. And then oftentimes I show up as a participant and half of the time people don't know it's me. So, <laughs> which is awesome because like people will be talking, they're like, how long have you been coming to Color the Trails events? And oh, a couple of years. And like, yeah, how did you find out about it? I'm like, oh, I'm the founder. And you see they're kind of shocked. And they're like, oh, you're taking this lesson too? I was like, yeah, I'm still learning, right? Because like, and that's why I think people appreciate it because it's like, I'm learning alongside everybody where else I find like, for a lot of people, they're a lot of, they're very expert, like they've done it. So it's like, it becomes a little bit intimidating, right? Where with me and Color the Trails, it's like, no, I'm learning. I'm still struggling in the same places that you're struggling. You're probably better with me on certain, certain things and others as well. So yeah, just kind of finding that balance. It's been very hard, but at the same time, I think I'm getting into a good routine in terms of knowing when to step in and then learning when not to step in and like actually trusting my leaders, the people who are leading the events to have full autonomy in terms of what happens in each province. And, and giving them the, letting them know that they have the right to, to decide, right? And I think that's the most important thing because if I'm deciding everything, then it just becomes, again, all about me, but rather by giving them the autonomy and we can discuss things if they have questions, but I really allow all of the color that chose leader to make the executive decision, but they just kind of let me know what's happening. And then when it comes to finances, I deal with that because nobody wants to deal with that. I just deal with the finances aspect of things and getting the sponsorship. Nice. You've been doing a lot of media lately. And I'm wondering, what is a question that you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I think for me, the question would be like, I spend so much time taking other people outside 
and have I worked to get my own guest relatives? And the question is, I'm still working on it. Because <laughs> I think it, it's a lot easier to convince other people to go outside. But when it comes to my whole family, they're just kind of giving me side eye, just being like, nope. So I think your family is a lot harder to persuade to do something than it is like people who are outside your family. They are not related. We didn't grow up with, so they didn't know everything about you. So they can just like ignore you when you're speaking. So, <laughs> so like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel that and I live that sometimes. <laughs> so what's next? What's coming up for Color of the Trails this summer? What's in the long-term plans? What's going on? Yeah, so what's coming up next is we're beginning to launch a spring and summer event. So we took April off. So now we're kind of getting to the full swing of things. So we have our big Mountain biking happening in D.C. at the end of the month. And then we have some hiking um, camping opportunity for folks, both Alberta and B.C., to be able to do that as well as Ontario. So, but one big major event is on the Color of the Trails aspect is in December, we've partnered up with Tourism Revelstoke and we are hosting our first ever Color the Slopes Winter Festival, where I encourage if you have the opportunity to come, because it's going to be a blast. We're going to have, I think, three or four packages people can choose from to do various outdoor activities. So you can do snowmobiling or you can do dog sledding. We can do skiing, snowboarding. Yeah. And just, it's going to be a very BIPOC space. And then we're going to hopefully watch some film on the first night, just being community together, have some live music as well, some DJ and just kind of celebrate winter. Like as winter is coming, we begin to celebrate and just have fun as to kind of kick us off into the winter, into the winter season. So that'll be in December. Amazing. How do our listeners find you? How do they find Color the Trails? Plug your sponsors. Give me all the links. <laughs> yeah. So you can find us colorthetrails.com or you can find us on Instagram. That's Color the Trails. And color is spelled the Canadian way with a U not the American way. So just FYI, when you're searching us for us, and then you can always hit me up on my DM at J-U-M-I-L, Juju Mill. And yeah, that's where you can kind of find, you can find us. Awesome. Yeah. And for our listeners, all those links are going to be in the show notes. I am so glad that we finally got a chance to get together. This has been amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It's been really wonderful to talk to you as well. That is it for another episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Links on where you can find Judy and Color the Trails and all of the resources we talked about are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did having it. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. We hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside. <laughs>